Have your Bibles turned to the book of Acts, chapter 25 this evening. If you need a Bible, Stuart has a bunch in his hands. Just raise your hand and he can bring them right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Acts 25 and 26 this evening. As we make our way towards the end of the book of Acts. 25 and 26 kind of all flow together in one story, and so we really can't break it up. Uh, but Acts 27 and 28, um, we, we have to break it up. because It's kind of all flows, but it's just way too long. So we'll get uh, um, 25 and 26 tonight, and then uh, next week 27, then 28, and then uh, we'll be done with the book of Acts. Sounds like everyone's there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather tonight, this opportunity to be in your word. Lord, we're never disappointed when we open the pages of your word because, Lord, you always speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from you this evening. We pray, Lord, for open ears. We thank you, Lord, for this building, this place you provided for us that we can gather here safely, Lord. And so we just ask your blessing upon our night tonight, Lord. We give it to you. Thank you for this beautiful time of worship, Lord, as you just anointed that, Lord. We pray for the kids downstairs as you're... Uh, instructing them through your word, Lord. You just bless the teachers and bless the kids downstairs. Give them receptive hearts and ears to hear, Lord, the message for them. And so we just give you all the glory and honor and praise for what you're doing in, in this church. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as chapter 25 opens, we find ourselves in the palace of the governor of Caesarea, whose name is Festus. Recall that Paul is still the prisoner there. Now, how did we get there? Well, if you remember, Paul desired to go to Jerusalem. He wanted to bring the church there, a monetary gift, to help them out. When Paul made it to Jerusalem, he goes into the temple with an offering. And as he comes out, he's accused of of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which he didn't do, but it didn't matter. A riot broke out. You know, Paul, you know, was was taken into custody. They're about to, to beat Paul. The Romans were that took him into custody and Paul says, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen? And the guy says, you know, I'm a citizen. You know, I paid it big bucks for my citizenship. Paul says, I was born into it. And, oh, man, now they're in trouble because, you know, they could get in trouble. And so, uh, you know, they're again reminding him it's unlawful to beat a Roman citizen without a trial. So then Paul is sent to Caesarea. There in Caesarea, we looked at last time, he, he appears before Felix and Drusilla. Acts 24:25 says this. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And we know the last time that the convenient time never came. And Felix and Drusilla missed out. According to history, two years later, Felix gets recalled back to Rome where he later ended up committing suicide. His wife, Drusilla, was on a way on a shopping trip, ended up being buried alive in hot lava at the age of 21 where Mount Eusebius erupted. So, Felix and Drusilla put off making that decision until it was too late. So it is with many people today. You share with them and, 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 and they listen and when they think about dying, they think about the afterlife and death and hell and they become fearful maybe, they be, tremble maybe, but tragically, they don't repent. They don't, they don't turn from where they're going. They continue on the path that, that's, that they're on. And, and that really is the, the message in these two chapters this evening. Those that have heard the gospel presented very clearly, and yet, yet tragically, they reject it. You know, I'll, I'll hear you again on this matter. You know, I'll come back for this, and, and, and it never happens. So in that respect, I really don't like these two chapters. You know, the good thing is, you know, the gospel is being showed forth. Paul's testimony is going to go forth in there. The bad thing is, 
you know, they don't make the decision for Christ. So, um, now we closed last time. Look at verse 27 of chapter 24. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do, do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So, as I shared last time, we go from getting rid of Felix the cat, now to Uncle Festus, and uh, Fester rather. Now, we don't, we don't know much about Festus, uh, but, but we do know that, that Paul was still in prison. Now, Festus has to deal with Paul. Now, that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 25. We read, Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, Felix and Festus, two complete opposites. We saw Felix, he was a, a, a former slave. He was brutal. He, you know, uh, he was a brutal ruler. He seems to take out his frustration upon uh, being a slave at one time or another. And he's getting back at the people. But now Felix is gone. Festus is now the governor of Judea. Uh, when he came into this place of being a governor, he's about 70 years old, and he was only in that position for about two years before he died in office. Now, as far as, as compared to Felix, Festus was basically an okay guy. So he takes over this position as governor. He waits only the three days before he decides to go to Jerusalem to meet, you know, the people he's going to be governing. Not a bad idea, you know, if you're going to govern the people, meet them, find out about them. And that, so that brings us to, to verse 2. He's down in Jerusalem. We read, Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. Now think about this for a minute. Paul has been in prison there in Caesarea for two years and, and now, as Festus meets with these Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, what are they still thinking about? Paul. They're still, it's still under their skin. They're thinking about how they still hated Paul and how they wanted to see him dead. So, as Festus comes to town, hey, we need to talk to you about this guy named Paul. Now, this would mean that Festus would have to give the approval, you know, to send Paul to them under guard. Now, obviously, the pop was not to, to see Paul. You know, the plot, as we read there, was to kill Paul. But it just shows us how much they still hated Paul even after two years. Now, what is clear here is an example of people who never give up on their hatreds. They held on to the hatred in their heart, uh, nursing them and causing them to grow instead of allowing it to die. And there are many people today that have a lot of hatred in their hearts for some, you know, maybe something that was done to them years ago and they just could never get over it. Maybe they were offended. Maybe there was this misunderstanding. Maybe it was something that they heard or saw another person do and they began to dislike this person. Then it kind of turned into bitterness and then it kind of turned into just, just hating them and, and, oh man, hating everything they say and hating everything that they do. I read a story about Leonardo da Vinci. True story who not only was a great artist, but also a draftsman, an engineer, and a thinker. There was this time in his life when his hatred actually almost ruined him. Just before he painted the Last Supper, he had an argument with another painter. Enraged and full of bitterness, he began to paint. One of the first faces that he painted was that of Judas. And so he decided to bring his vengeance against the artist, and so he painted Judas's face like the face of that artist. And so when, they, when it finished painting the face of Judas, everyone recognized it as it was the face of the other artist. And the artist, he thought, yes, man, I have my revenge. For generations to come, people will know, you know, would, would shame this man. With that, Leonardo started to paint the picture of Christ. But he couldn't do it. 
Something was holding him back. He just couldn't do it. All of his efforts were useless. Then he realized that he could not paint the picture of Christ as long as there was hatred in his heart. And so he painted out the face of Judas and apologized to the other artists. Then he painted the face of Jesus and the others. And this day that painting is one of the greatest works of art in history. As long as you have those bad feelings in your heart, you'll never show forth Jesus in your life. You'll never have that, that joy, that happiness that, 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 that the Lord desires in your heart. You'll never be useful. That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Just as God, through Christ Jesus, going upon that cross, dying for our sins, has forgiven us, we too need to forgive one another, not hold that hatred towards one another. So, verse 4, we continue. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, that those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. Now, really, this is great wisdom on the part of Festus, at least at, least at this point. I mean, perhaps he could see what they were trying to do. So he comes up with this decision. Basically telling them, if you've got a problem with Paul, he's not coming down here. You go up there and, and, and present your problem and present your case there and we'll take care of this. Now, keep in mind that they failed two years earlier when they appeared to him the first time to put him to death. Now, I also think that Festus wanted to get rid of this problem that Felix left him. And so he, he felt that if the Jewish religious leaders really had an issue with Paul... If it was legitimate, then they would make the trip to Caesarea and pre- present the case there. Then he could wash his hands of this whole thing with Paul. So Festus, we read, stays there in Jerusalem for another ten days, then he goes back to Caesarea. Look at verse 6. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. You know, the amazing thing here is that these religious you know, leaders travel the 60 miles to come there, and they have nothing new to say against Paul. I mean, the, the, the same charges they came up with two years ago that came to nothing, they're there again. There are no witnesses could, that could substantiate, you know, what they were charging Paul with. And all they really had was false charges against him. And, and as serious as these charges were, we read that they could not prove any of them. Now, the thing about a Roman court is you had to have proof in your case against the man. They didn't do that. So now this presents Festus with a, another problem. What does he do? Now, remember... He's new on the job, okay? At this point, he, I think he's a people pleaser. Look at verse 9. We read, But Festus, wanting to go to do, to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? In other words, let's go back to Jerusalem, where if I judge you there, I will be seen as the good guy, and all the Jews will, will like me because, you know, uh, I judged you there. I mean, he, he's fast becoming this people pleaser. Listen, when you're a people pleaser, you have allowed something other than God to take first place in your life. You're allowing the opinions of other people uh, to matter more than God's opinion. What they think of you matters more than what God thinks of you. 
You know, I don't, I don't want to tell them I'm a Christian because they might think less of me. Or I don't want them to know I go to church because they may not like me. Paul put it this way in Galatians 1.10 in the New Living Translation. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. See, in this life, we only have, uh, have to please one person, and that is our Creator. You only have to please the Lord, the one who made you. You only need one person's approval, and that's God's. And that simplifies life enormously. So, Paul here, he's using great wisdom when Festus asked him to go to Jerusalem and let him judge him there. Look at verse 10. So, Paul says, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. I mean, Paul is, is discerning what's going on here. He's disgusted with their, their legal maneuvering and political manipulation. And, and he's tired of being this political pawn. He says, you know, I'm done. I'm not going back up with you to Jerusalem. Enough is enough. I've done no wrong. I appeal to Caesar. Verse 12 we read, Then Festus, who had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Now, there are those... I said, well, Paul, he made a mistake here. I mean, he should never appealed to Caesar. They think that he should simply have left the case with Festus, maybe he would have gotten set free, and, and he wouldn't be in prison any longer. But as we pointed out already, I believe this was all a political game for Festus and how he could make himself look good in front of the Jews. Now, Paul certainly didn't have a death wish. You know, even though he was ready to die for Christ, willing to die for Christ, he wasn't about to walk into the slaughterhouse, you know. The Lord calls us, you know, the Lord uh, has given us wisdom to use in facing persecution. You know, we're not to, to go over and find an ISIS camp and, and stand up and start sharing them with the love of Christ. I, I mean, it would mean certain death right there, you know, unless the Lord really spoke to you audibly and said, I mean, this is the way you're going to die, I want you to go do this. You know, you're not looking for the, the persecution. Oh, yeah, you know, blessed are those that are persecuted for Christ's sake. You know, and you go pick fights every place. You know, that's not what we're called to do. So, so Paul is just using wisdom here, saying, you know what? I know you guys are going to want to kill me. No, you know, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus says, to Caesar you shall go. Now, keep in mind who the Caesar was at this time, who Paul is appealing to. It's none other than Caesar Nero. Not a good guy. You know, horrible things he did to Christians. Now, his reign reign began in 54 AD and went all the way through 68 AD. But what's interesting about him is that early on his, his, in his reign, he, he was not insane. The first five years of his reign, under the influence of good men around him, Nero was regarded as a wise and just ruler. So Paul had no reason at this point to believe that Nero would be anti-Christian. But it seems that after Paul had his uh, you know, time with Nero, that something changed, and, and Nero then went insane, possibly demon-possessed, people think, uh, at the things that he did. He went after Christians with a vengeance and just uh, uh, murdered and brutally tortured Christians. You see, he heard the truth, and he rejected the truth and turned against Christians. We know from history that he even killed his own wife, his mother-in-law, and several other relatives who had become Christians. Again, they were not just killed. They were brutally tortured and killed by Nero for their faith. But at this time, he's not that bad. And so Paul is appealing to Caesar. Now look at verse 13. 
And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. So now we have King Agrippa. This is King Agrippa II, and this is his sister, Bernice. Now, Herod Agrippa II ruled in an area in the Roman Empire that was the northeast of Festus's province. Not only that, Herod Agrippa was a, a, a known expert in Jewish customs and religious matters. Uh, now he did not have jurisdiction over Paul in this case, but he can certainly help Festus figure out what to do with Paul. Hopefully not sending him to Rome, because if he sends him to Rome, to Caesar, without any charge against him, again, he could be in trouble. Now what's even more disgusting here, though, is according to secular history, Herod Agrippa and his sister Bernice were in an incestuous, incestuous relationship. In fact, occasionally Bernice would leave her brother for another man, Emperor Vespasian, and later his son Titus, but she would then return to Agrippa. Now also remember that their sister Drusilla was the wife of the former governor Felix. You know, it's like, you know, in the sands of the hourglass, so goes the days of our lives. It's like a soap opera going on with this thing. But this family is much worse than that. You know, whenever you read the name Herod here, because this is the Herod Agrippa, we often think that this guy lived a very long time. You know, man, this Herod, man, a long time. But, but actually, it was a royal family name. This is Herod Agrippa II, who was the last of the Herods. His great-grandfather, he was the guy that murdered the innocent children in Bethlehem because of his paranoia about the coming king. His grandfather murdered John the Baptist because of his indecisive ways and desire to please his wicked wife, Herodias. His father, Agrippa I, murdered the apostle James and also had Peter uh, thrown into prison as well because he saw that it pleased the people politically. Then we remember in Acts chapter 12, the same Agrippa, the father of Agrippa the, uh, the second here in our text, has been struck down by the angel of the Lord and eaten with worms. I mean, a lot of rotten fruit on this family tree, you might say. So needless to say, King Agrippa II was from a dysfunctional family. You know, sin and rejection of God's word will cause all kinds of family problems. When, when the family that, that is not focused on the Lord has, has no, no uh, idea of, of God in their lives, anything, it just brings more, more sin and more problems. And so here we see Festus brings this case before Agrippa to see what he has to say. Man, you're more familiar with Jewish customs and Jewish law, you know, hoping to find some wisdom in this matter. Look now at verse 14. We read... When they had, we'll go all the way down to verse 22. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about what, whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accuser face to face, and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about certain, the certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decisions of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. Now, keep in mind that Festus did not know much about the Jewish faith and even less about this Jesus that Paul spoke of. 
So when Herod Agrippa II and his sister Bernice came by to show their respect to the new governor, that must have caused Festus this, this sigh of relief. Okay, I got a guy here who's familiar with, with, uh, you know, with the Jews. See, he was concerned how he could send Paul to see Caesar Nero. See, because Nero would not, would, would want to know why he could not settle the issue. Maybe Nero would think that Festus was not the man for the job. And so he's in this pickle. He, you know, he needs some help here. Some words of wisdom that, that can send along with Paul to make his case before Nero. So look at verse 23. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. So this is a big deal here. This is more than just a hearing in a court, you know, some evidence. This is a big time, big time event. We read that they had came in with great pomp. In other words, they came in dressed to the hilt. They had the royal purple apparel on. Uh, Festus was probably dressed in his crimson robes. And of course, there stood the legionnaires who were the, the tallest of the Romans, the special elite guards standing there at attention with their fancy uniforms and this whole assembly of notable people all in there to hear, you know, uh, Agrippa and Festus is all there. And, and uh, really a public occasion to show off the king and, and, and the glory. And so he comes into the arena and all the others. And probably this was done in this arena in Caesarea, that still exists today, uh, present day. And I looked some pictures of it. I was going to bring them with me and I, I forgot. But uh, it's still there. This big uh, amphitheater type place here. So here they come in with all their pomp and circumstance. And then you have Paul. They bring Paul in. According to Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 10, he's described his own appearance as being physically weak. Historians tell us that uh, it was a short man with bold legs and a long hooked nose. Little, uh, little bit of hair and runny eyes. And, and yet, here's this little man commanding the attention of this entire Roman hierarchy in the capital of Caesarea. It's amazing. It's amazing to me what the Lord can do with a little of anything. And I think of Bethlehem, tiny little town, but the most well-known village of all history. Why? Because Jesus was born there. And where Jesus is, big things begin to happen. And so what's going to happen here, we know Paul is going to get to share his testimony in a very big way. Look at verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and to not specify the charges against him. Again, as I said already, Paul, or Festus is in this pickle here. Paul, being a Roman citizen, appealed to Caesar. He's got to send him to Caesar. But, you know, uh, being just a political pawn and there are no real charges against Paul, if Paul goes to Caesar without any charges, Festus is, is in big trouble and can lose his position. So he's appealing to Agrippa for help. Now, chapter 25, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Now, I can almost picture Paul going, oh, you bet. I am so ready for this. Maybe rubbing his hands together. Praise God, it's my turn to talk. Goes on to verse 1. So Paul stretched out his hand 
and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. I love that Paul says that. Hear me patiently. Here, listen, King Agrippa, this is going to take some time. Okay, sit back, relax, you know. It's not going to be brief. This is very important. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. So Paul begins saying, all these Jews, they know all about me. Apparently Paul made a name for himself as a, as a, in Jerusalem as a youth. He was a, from a well-to-do family, influential family. He was trained by the finest religious teacher of the day, went to the most prestigious schools, a real intellect, courageous, independent. His character coupled with, with charm had made, it, made its mark. Young man, a promise in the circle. Look at verse 5, he goes on. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. He's saying, you know, my excuses are here, they know, but they're not willing to admit. I was a Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees. We know Paul talked about that in one of his epistles. He goes on in verse 6. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God, night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. What is this hope that Paul keeps talking about? It's the hope that God would send a Savior to the world to redeem people from the power and the presence and the penalty of sin. It was the hope that David spoke of in Psalm 16 where he says that thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. It was the great hope of Israel, the Messiah, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that was to elevate the hope of God's people Israel. See, Paul would later write to the Romans in Romans 6, 4 that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was to elevate the hope of God's people beyond the natural, uh, national to the spiritual, not just the temporary hope, but hope eternal, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. All because Jesus would die for the sins of the world and rise again from the dead. That's why Paul goes on in verse 8 by saying, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? I like that. He presents his opening case and brings it all back to the cross, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and says, why is it so incredible for you to believe this? Folks, anyone who thinks that God can't raise the dead has a God that's way too small. I mean, a God who made 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and 100 million galaxies at least the same size of the Milky Way, and put them into intangible space can certainly raise someone from the dead. That he's the same God that can make a human body out of some 60 million trillion cells and make each cell so small that it takes a good microscope even to see one and a super microscope to see inside one. And in each one of those miniature cities, a miniature city complete with power stations and transportation systems, methods of communication, each cell highly specialized with an incredibly complex chemical structure. Now, do you think that God who made the vastness of the universe and the complexities of the human body can't raise the dead? <laughs> it all depends on your view of God. See, most of us do not doubt the power of God, but we do doubt the willingness of God to intervene in our situations personally. Why should He care about us? In this big world, why should the Creator of the universe care about me? The answer lies back at the cross. 
Paul said in Romans 8, 32, If God who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He'll supply everything that's good for me, everything that's good for you. How do I know this? Because he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, his very best. So when Paul says, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? I mean, he knows. He knows. Now Paul here next goes on to give his testimony by relating to him his past life before Christ. This section of scripture has the most, the most detail given to us of Paul's conversion uh, experience in any other place in scripture. Paul begins now, look at verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul says, hey, my old life, before I came to Christ, I persecuted Christians. I went everywhere, even in the foreign cities, to hunt them down, to destroy their lives. But then something happened to me on the road to Damascus. Look at verse 12. While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we, all, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so here we have Paul's, his Paul's testimony. His experience of coming to Christ. And, and we just see the description. It was at midday. It was at noon. A light from heaven shining brighter than the sun. Uh, he falls to the ground. And he hears this voice. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why, you know, why are you kicking against the goats? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, in those days, they would put a, a, an ox on a, on a yoke. And the, a young ox wouldn't like that yoke. And so they would begin to, to kick with that yoke upon them. And so the, the guy on the plow came up with, this, with uh, this, this long pole with this sharp point on the end of it. So when they, the ox went to kick back on it, they would, you know, poke him with, with, with the goad itself. And that, that, that ox would learn not to kick back against him. You know, so you go ahead and get and, 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 an object, but kick it, but it's going to hurt you. And, uh, and so the, the Lord is saying to Paul, you know, it's been hard for you, Paul, to kick against the goads. And no doubt the Spirit of God had been dealing with Paul, you know, uh, before his conversion experience, as he does with all of us. You know, before we come to that point of giving our life to the Lord, these different things that God does in our lives. And I believe watching Stephen's death, uh, no doubt, had a tremendous effect upon Paul. The Bible says that Stephen's face was shining like an angel and they were sto- as they were stoning him. And that Stephen prayed this, O Father, don't lay this into their charge. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. I'm sure Paul heard that and went, whoa, that, that, is, that, 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 that had an effect on his life. It was a goad. So Paul found himself kicking against it and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and his life kicking against it. He continues with his testimony. Look at verse 15. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you, I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan 
to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God's call in Paul's life and Paul's desire after God's call in his life was for, for them to be turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Certainly there are two kingdoms in our world today, two spheres of government, the government of God and the government of Satan. They're mutually exclusive and antagonistic. And every man on this planet, every woman on this planet, uh, you know, exists in one of these two kingdoms. You know, we as believers, we, we are living in the kingdom of light, not in the kingdom of darkness. The, those living in the kingdom of darkness are under the control of Satan or under the, uh, you know, those in the kingdom of light are under the control of God. In the beginning, there was just one kingdom, the kingdom of God, until, you know, the Lord created, you know, this angelic being named Lucifer, the anointed cherub, and he rebelled against the authority of God and formed a second government, the government of death and darkness. Now, ultimately, Satan's kingdom, that the kingdom of darkness is going to come, come down, come crashing down, come to an end. In fact, I believe it's getting very, very close to come to an end, and I think we all say amen to that. When Jesus returns, I believe it will be very soon, that he'll establish his kingdom upon the earth, and at that time, Satan will be bound a thousand years into the Abuso. After a thousand years, he'll be released, a short reprieve. And then at that the end of the short period, he'll be cast into Gehenna. That's in the outer darkness or the kingdom of darkness. There's very, something very foreboding about darkness. I don't know if you've ever been to fantastic caverns, you know, and they get you down in there and they, go to, they get you way in the back and then they turn off all of their lights and it's pitch Black. I mean, you can put your hand, you know, an inch away from your face and you can't even see your hand. And the thing about it is your eyes don't get used to that darkness and you just can't see anything. And I believe, you know, that the, the kingdom of darkness, that, that will one day be the, the blackness of darkness forever and eternity for those that have rejected Christ. And at that point, there will only be one kingdom left and that is God's kingdom, the kingdom of light and life and all those within it subject unto God and His authority. I can't wait for that. So Paul tells them that his ministry that Jesus called him to was to deliver people from the kingdom of darkness, from the hold that Satan had on people's lives into the kingdom of light and free them from the power of, of Satan and from sin and to re- free, re- free, receive the forgiveness of their sin uh, through the gospel message. So he goes on, look at verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout to all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and proclaim, proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, that's what I've been called to do. I've been called to give the message of salvation. That message begins with repentance. Yes, works. Uh, yes, Paul says good works were also part of the message, not as a means of attaining salvation. Paul had already said that, you know, we received Christ by faith, you know. But, but here again, Paul is just, just, just pouring out, you know, what God has called him to do, pouring out the gospel to King Agrippa. And I believe King Agrippa could no longer fight off the Holy Spirit's onslaught of his conscience. Agrippa, in that crowded courtroom there, stood with Paul, uh, where Paul had stood on Damascus Road. He's standing there face to face. The gospel has been presented to him. The Senate Christ, 
the great divide. So what does he have to say? Look at verse 24. Now as he thus made his defense, Paul that is, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I am also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention since this thing was not done on a corner. First of all, Festus accuses Paul of being mad. He says, I'm, you know, Paul says, I'm not mad. You know, but he also says, I am sure that Agrippa is aware of these things. He's aware of Jesus Christ. He's aware uh, of the crucifixion. He's aware of what the scriptures have to say. I'm not mad. And now Paul then turns his focus to King Agrippa. He's presented his testimony. He clearly presented the gospel. Now Paul's turned to him and says, says you know, I'm sure he's just staring directly in his eyes. Look at verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. He said, man, it's laid out for you right there and there. It's there before you. If you believe the prophets, and I know that you do, then you need to believe what the prophets said, that Jesus Christ would come, he would suffer, three days later he would rise again from the dead. Do you believe that? Do you believe this gospel that I'm presenting to you? How does he respond? Look at verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Wow. Now there are those who look at this and, and, this, and they go back and forth over this. This big argument, you know, you know, that I don't really tend to be a part of. But <laughs> some people believe that Agrippa was, was mocking Paul. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. You expect me to become a Christian. Kind of laughing at him, you know. You think you're going to persuade me. Others think that Agrippa was being quite serious. Paul, you're almost persuading me to become a Christian. Was Agrippa that close really to conversion? We don't know. No, we'll have to leave that to the commentators to fight out. But what we do know is what Paul says in verse 29. Look at verse 29. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am except for these chains. Now, by that verse alone, I lean towards the fact that Agrippa was honestly saying, Paul, you've almost persuaded me. But here's the tragedy. Almost is not good enough. Almost is not good enough. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father which is in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father who is in heaven. There's no middle ground. Almost is not good enough for Agrippa or anyone. How sad that, that he was so close to coming to Christ, but backed off. That's a tragedy. They said, you know, the, these chapters, they show the tragedy of people. In so many lives today, they come so close to giving their life to Christ, and yet they, yet they turn away, or I'll hear you again on this matter. Somehow they just don't take that final step. Agrippa was deeply touched by what he was hearing. It was ringing true in his heart, and yet he bailed out. Remind me of the story about three people, a computer whiz, a Boy Scout and a minister who were flying in a three-passenger plane. The pilot said, It's not looking good, guys. Our engines are cutting out and we're going down. The problem is we have only three parachutes and I'm taking one. Realizing one of them would be left behind, the passengers looked at one another. Immediately the computer was grabbed a chute, chute, calling out, Sorry, guys, but I've got to take this because I'm the smartest man in the world, as he jumped out the door. The minister turned to the Boy Scout and said, I've had a good life. The Lord is real to me. I know I'm going to heaven. So you go ahead and, and take the last shoot, parachute. I'll go down with the plane. 
That won't be necessary, said the Boy Scout. The smartest man in the world just jumped out with my backpack. So too, Agrippa had the opportunity to make it safely to eternity. But he grabbed the wrong bag. He grabbed Bernice, okay? You know, you see, every time Agrippa is mentioned, he's always with Bernice. She had a hold on him, had a hold on his life. Mind me of another story about an eagle that swooped down and grabbed a rodent in its powerful claws, pulling it to its chest. He, he soared higher and higher. Suddenly, however, he, he's no longer looking majestic, but began to flap his wings rapidly before losing altitude and crashing onto a rock. Upon investigation, a naturalist observing the scene discovered that the little rodent had its teeth embedded in the chest of the mighty eagle. Although the eagle thought he was controlling the rodent, all the while the rodent was actually draining the life from him. That's what happened to Agrippa. That's what happens in life. People think, well, I'm controlling him or her or, 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 or it. And as they tighten their grip, but in reality, the thing that they're clinging to is the very thing that's drawing life from them. And sin does that to you and it does that to me. It's a rat. It'll drain you and keep you from being what God knows that you could be. Agrippa didn't surrender his life. Finally, we read verse 30. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, and those who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So the meeting's over. They rise up one by one. Holy Spirit was there. Holy Spirit was moving. I mean, he noted them down in this book, every one of them, respectively and individually. The king rose up, who brought the court to a close hastily, afraid for his very life that Paul might lay on him one more soul-searching question. He had come as close as he wanted to come. The Holy Spirit noted that down in the Word here. The king stood up, we read. He made no decision regarding the all-important question, not what should be done with Paul, but what should be done with Jesus Christ. Or rather, he made a decision. He had to do nothing with Jesus. Then the governor, we read Festus too, he made a decision. Paul was mad, Christianity was for fools, he wanted no part of it. And then finally Bernice, uh, the poor young woman, so rich, so beautiful, so soiled by sin, with the chance before her being cleansed and set free from sin and guilt, she too rose up to walk away. For her it was Agrippa or Jesus, blinded by the lure of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lies of Satan, she rose up. And they that sat with them, we read, they also rose up. One by one in this whole area there, the, the rich, the powerful, the influential, they made a decision. The decision was against Christ. Those in the courtroom, those who were able to come in and hear the case, uh, they heard the gospel, they made the decision. See, there's going to come a time, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, that a book is going to be opened, the Lamb's Book of Life. It says there in Revelation 20:15 that anyone not found written in the Book of Life will be cast into the lake of fire. These folks in our study, they heard the gospel. Now they're with no excuse. When they, be, when they appear before God on judgment day, they can't say, I never heard. Because God will say, roll him, Gabriel, look back right here. You know, this is what happened. Listen, in the same way, when it comes to those we share with, listen, you share with them anyway. You know, and, and, and when they listen and when they think about dying in life after death in heaven or hell, uh, you know, they may become interested. You know, we pray that they, they repent. But God knows. God knows what they're going to do, you see. We've got to do what God has called us to do. Paul shared his faith. 
He did, you know, what God has called him to do. The results are up to God. As we close, they said, this man may have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. The reality is that Paul really was the one that was free. All these others were, uh, were still in chains, free from the bondage of sin and death was Paul, but not these guys. They were still in chains. All right, next week, chapter 27, and the following chapter 28. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these two chapters, Lord. There's a lot there. Father, we see just Paul pouring out his heart. We see, Father, that uh, these men, Lord, these, these ladies that were there, Lord, their rejection of the gospel. And, Lord, it breaks our heart. And that's one of the reasons, Father, that these chapters are hard, because we see the rejection of the gospel. We know what awaits these people that have rejected the gospel. Lord, help us not to be discouraged, Lord, even though we see that here. Lord, help us to have a renewed sense of urgency, Lord, to share our faith, to be those that live lives that are holy and pleasing to you, that make a difference in this world, Lord. Father, we do anticipate your soon return, Jesus. We pray, uh, Lord, for uh, that day, Lord. We pray, Father, that Jesus should come quickly, Lord. That's our prayer. Thank you for this night tonight, Lord. We thank you for your love and grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.